Six years ago this week, gunmen opened fire in the offices of the magazine Charlie Hebdo in Paris, France. The magazine had published cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. The gunmen had come to put to death journalists working at Charlie Hebdo for blaspheming against Islam. The attack at Charlie Hebdo on January 7, 2015, was an attack on the principle of freedom of speech. But it wasn't the first nor the last assault on that principle. The threats to freedom of speech come not only from jihadists, but also within Western societies. It is sometimes said that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. We should ask ourselves today, six years on, whether we're still willing to pay the true cost of liberty. I'm Ilan Jurna. Welcome to the New Ideal podcast. I'm joined today by my colleague, Ankar Gatte. We're going to be looking at the Charlie Hebdo assassinations and what it takes to uphold the ideal of freedom of speech in the face of threats to it today. Welcome, Ankar. Hi, Ilan. Good to be here. I thought we should start with... So I mentioned a little bit about the attack, but I thought we should start with putting it in a bit of more context, because in a certain way, when the news broke that that day, it was sort of midstream. I mean, there has been a lot happening in sort of progression leading up to the, the assassinations at Charlie Hebdo. And I, I thought it was, it's useful just to sort of sketch the background for that uh, as context for thinking about what we're doing. Yes, and if you know some of the history when they were assassinated in, in January 2015. Some of them were under police protection and the the publishing office was under armed guard. So they had security there and there's a reason they had security there. I, I take it, I think at, at a minimum, you have to go back to the Salman Rushdie affair in uh, the turn of the, the century, so in the 1990s, the, that a fatwa was placed on Rushdie's head for a book that he wrote, The Satanic Verses. And it was explicit that it, this is a call to assassinate or for followers of Islam and the Ayatollah to assassinate an author and those involved in publishing this book in the West because they disliked the content of the book. And I mean, many of the followers have never read it. And then that, that is a pattern, but it, the, the leaders were calling explicitly for the assassination of a Western author for something he had written. And the response from Western governments, including unfortunately the US government was abysmal and going down from there. So it was, uh, so certainly no principled defense of the author and of this, that this is, a, is an important indeed sacred principle of Western society that, that we value and have come to value freedom of speech and are not going to surrender that principle. There was no defense of that. And if anything, there was blaming the victim. It's like, why do you have to write this? Why do you have to be so provocative? And trying to distance themselves from the content of the book. Uh, I mean, that is, I think, the basic reaction to it. And then things have, have gone from that and have progressed in a, I think, in a predictable way, but in a depressing way. And I mean, I know you 
have followed this a lot. So you can talk about some of the things after that. I think it's, so for understanding what happens between Rushdie, which is 89, 90 to Charlie Hebdo in 2015, it's worth getting a few more of the landmarks or sort of the major events that happened in the progression. Um, if you skip forward to 2004, um, there's a, a, a short documentary that is aired on Dutch TV and it's written by Ayan Hirsi Ali and it's produced and directed by Theo van Gogh. That documentary points a finger at Islamic teaching as a source for why women are oppressed in that culture. Uh, Theo van Gogh ends up on a street in, uh, in the Netherlands with a knife stuck in his chest. And on that knife is a, is a letter from the killer saying, I'm coming after all those involved in this movie because you've offended my religion and you have no right to live. And this person was unrepentant when he was in, in prison, uh, when, he, when he was sentenced uh, for the crime. So this is where Ayan Hirsi Ali, who, uh, you know, she was a politician at that time. She goes under police protection. I think she had threats before, but this is the point at which she now has to live under 24-hour police protection. Skip forward now a year to uh, 2005, September, and I think this is a major turning point the Danish newspaper, Jyllands Posten, uh, some of the editors there are getting wind of, okay, we, Theo van Gogh was murdered in the streets a year ago in the Netherlands. There are cartoonists for children's books saying, I'm, I'm not comfortable illustrating anything to do with Islam. And so they ask themselves, is there really a climate now of self-censorship, of people afraid to say or do or depict anything to do with Islam? So they come up with the idea of soliciting cartoons about Muhammad to publish in the newspaper to see what they could get. And they had real trouble getting those cartoons. In the end, they published them saying, yes, there, there does seem to be a climate of self-censorship. We're, re we're really worried about it. And this is something we should pay attention to. So that's published September 2005. That really hit a nerve because within a few months, there is a kind of manufactured outrage for this, where a number of imams go around the Middle East kind of agitating and, and make, circulating some of the cartoons and some that they kind of had made up there of their own just to um, antagonize people. And then what you get is this explosion in the start of 2006 of riots in Pakistan and burning of embassies uh, in different countries, a boycott of Dan Danish products in various parts of the world. And Yilan's post in the newspaper is facing death threats and has to have security. And the, the people working there uh, are facing death threats and have to live. And the, the cartoonists themselves have to go into hiding. And there's a massive explosion of people. I think we were really outraged by this. And we recognize this as a significant uh, turning point I, on the progression of what started with the Rushdie uh, uh, fatwa. So I think it's important to get that what you would, you, you said that the, the, it went, it was really unprincipled in response to the Rushdie fatwa and it kind of went downhill from that. I think the, the cartoons crisis was a, a mark of just how bad things were because the, there was an unwillingness in the American press to reprint the cartoons in solidarity with Yellen's Post and a few newspapers in, in Europe did, and one of them was Charlie Hebdo. And this is part of how it gets into the story of sort of this climate of self-censorship in response to threats from Islamists. So, you know, just 
abbreviating the story of it, uh, Charlie Hebdo reprints the cartoons. Then a lot of the other things happen where it's further confirmation that there is fear, that a lot of people are self-censoring. Uh, I believe it's 2011 that Charlie Hebdo is, their offices are firebombed because of having reprinted the cartoons. And then you get to 2015, which is two gunmen show up yelling, Allahu Akbar, God is great, and we're avenging the prophet, in, as I said at the beginning, to, to punish the, the journalists who work at Charlie Hebdo for the crime, in their view, of blaspheming. So, you know, there's this whole progression, which if you sort of, for, for people reacting to this in real time, it's like one more thing, and it's, it's, it seems like it's unconnected, but there's really a through line here of, I think, appeasement of threats, cowardice towards them, and a real abdication of responsibility, both, I think, by politicians and also by intellectuals and people in the media. Uh, I think it, it was really shameful the way uh, a lot of newspapers refused to stand alongside Yilans Poston and then Charlie Hebdo uh, after 2015. Yes, and it's worth saying, I think, one more thing about why the Da the Danish cartoon crisis, as it, as it has been come to be called, is, I think, a descent from the, the Rushdie affair was really bad. But you could make an argument, I don't think it's a good argument, but you could make this argument that people in the West didn't recognize that we're at war with uh, Islamic totalitarianism spearheaded by Iran. I think Iran knew they were at war with us. We didn't want to face that. So you can view the Rushdie thing as a kind of appeasement. Uh, and appeasement doesn't work. And that's part of the lesson that you get from the Rushdie affair and other uh, acts of appeasement. But the cartoon crisis is we're at war in the Middle East. This is after 9-11. We're fighting Islamic totalitarians, whether we admit it or not. That's what we're facing. We're at war in Afghanistan, we're at war in Iraq. And even when we're at war and this arises, it's complete capitulation. And it was again, the kind of, why do you have to publish these? Why did this Danish newspaper have to do this? Why would anybody republish this? And so it was appeasement when, you're, when you're, your soldiers and citizens are being killed on the battlefield. And that is such a, I think a greater capitulation that it, it's like we have no ideals for which we're fighting. We're at war, but we have no idea why we're at war, what I, our ideals are, and the enemy that we're facing. And so I found the Rushdie affair was depressing. I found the Danish cartoons even more depressing. So with one thing that surprised me after the assassinations of Charlie Hebdo was the public reaction, particularly in France and other European countries, and even here in the US, there was a massive outpouring of public support for, well, it's hard to say exactly what for, but there was sympathy and grief for what had happened. And I just want to share some images of what we saw in the streets of Paris and other cities uh, in, in Europe, where I think there were more people in the streets of Paris and France generally after the Charlie Hebdo assassination than there were right after the, the end of World War II when everyone was celebrating the defeat of the, the Nazis and the, the, um, sort of the liberation of Europe. So we have people by the hundreds of thousands, probably close to several millions showing up 
holding up signs, Je suis Charlie, which means I am Charlie. So standing in solidarity with what up until that point was a, you know, not a widely circulating magazine, not beloved by any means uh, in France. It's more poking its finger in the eye of a lot of the establishment. And more than anything, you see world leaders coming up, standing shoulder to shoulder, marching, leading the march uh, on January 11th, the day that was marked out for remembering the, the fallen journalists. And just to give you a flavor of sort of the cultural moment in contrast to what had come before, um, you get a lot of people saying Je suis Charlie and, and the hashtag goes uh, wild on, on social media. And you even get things like this, which is the, the Simpsons, a long running show on Fox has a, a moment after one of its episodes in January of that year, you know, marking its, its uh, solidarity with the Charlie Hebdo victims. So I remember this and we wrote about this at the time and we, we had a number of events at the time. We brought in um, experts on free speech. We brought in Fleming Rose, who was the journalist at Yulens Poston, who, knew, who had commissioned the cartoons originally and was friends with some of the journalists at Charlie Hebdo. And, and we, we spoke out about the importance of freedom of speech. Now, the there was something really visceral about that public reaction, particularly in France and in other places. And one concern, which I think has been borne out is it, it hasn't really changed anything fundamentally. Uh, I mean, all those people, they might still have their posters or their memories of that day. But I mean, my impression is it didn't really sink in. Uh, yeah, I don't think it sank in. And I think couldn't in a certain way. I actually found the aftermath of the assassinations depressing. And if part of why I found the whole episode really depressing is this kind of solidarity had to happen with the Danish cartoon crisis. It had to happen when it was, this is a, a newspaper who's testing whether there's self-censorship. And we should come back to talk about what self-censorship means. But they're testing, is there this climate that people are saying exists now in Europe uh, and among European intellectuals and artists that they won't talk about certain issues and aspects of Islam, including depicting the Prophet Muhammad in, in uh, drawings or cartoons and so on, because of fear not because they think, oh, it's wrong to do so, but they're afraid. Is that, does that climate exist? The cartoon crisis and it's the reaction, so but that it became a crisis, was the proof that, yeah, there is a problem here. And it's at that point that people had to march and we should have seen the newspapers across Europe, but even people marching, displaying the cartoons. That is, no, this is a fundamental right that people can speak their ideas, give voice to their ideas, even if you disagree with them. But when it comes to the point that someone says, I'm going to kill you because you've expressed this idea, there's no debate anymore. You have to side, even if you disagree with the person voicing the idea, you have to side with that. I mean, we did events around the cartoon crisis where we displayed the cartoons. So, and part of our view was, this is what people have to do. If you're gonna stand this is what it means to stand in solidarity with them. And this is the time to stand. And after they've been assassinated, Charlie Hebdo was one of the few people, as you said, to stand with the Danish uh, 
newspaper that had originally published these. They needed support prior to being assassinated. And where were the people, as we said, they were, the Charlie Hebdo was already under police protection and so on. Where was the outrage of, for that? And not, okay, they've been killed and we don't like being, people being killed. So we're, gonna, we're going to march. And it's not vicious to do that, but it's not what is necessary and what is needed. So let's talk about what it would look like a bit more, what it looked like to uphold freedom of speech and what we mean by intellectual freedom and, in, and freedom of speech particularly. So I think it's important that you mention that issue that you know we displayed the cartoons when we could at those events uh, in 2006. Sometimes we weren't allowed to display them uh, in public. But I, I mean, looking at those cartoons, none of them are something I would put on my wall. And I, I have read Charlie Hebdo. It's not something I subscribe to. I don't really, it's not the kind of thing that interests me. I think it's important that that is something that you can bracket and say, I don't care what they say. I don't, I don't actually, it's not a magazine that I, I have. I actually, some of the things I really disagree with. And I still think it's important that they have the right to speak and to, to criticize. And, and I think it's doubly important when they're, criticism is of an issue or a movement or an ideological phenomenon that is actually bad so that somebody needs to be saying this and if, it, if it's um and on that score i do agree with them I, I i would like there to be more people critical of those aspects of islam so maybe it's worth sort of zooming out a bit and asking or just sort of unpacking a bit what do we mean by freedom of speech because sometimes it's it, i think there's a lot of misunderstandings around what it means and how and, and is it okay if you disagree with it and, and what if you don't like what they're saying and, and so forth yeah the the crucial thing here is when you're defending freedom of speech you're defending the presentation and communication of ideas of viewpoints the whole realm of ideas is a realm in which people disagree. So not everyone agrees about every idea. And part of the freedom to think is the freedom to think for yourself. Like, what do I think is right? What do I think is true? How do I want to live on what ideas, on what principles? And in order to be able to really think about that, one of the aspects is you have to be able to talk to and communicate with other people see what other people think, engage with their ideas. Some you'll agree with, some you'll disagree with, but it's you have to have the power to look at the intellectual world, the world of ideas, and think what you agree with and what you don't. And there can't be a censor that is a government um, that is saying, no, these ideas are out of bounds. Nobody can talk about these. Nobody can present these. The moment you allow that, then you've ceded sort of your intellectual authority of figuring out what's true. And you've delegated it now to a government and no one has a right to delegate that to the government. So the government has no legitimate power to say, these ideas are right, these are wrong. These are things people can hear. These are things people can't hear. That doesn't mean every idea is true or every idea is good, or so, but the government can't have this power. You as a citizen have to think about that. And so to say that a person has the freedom to speak and the freedom to think does not mean you agree with them, but it's you're recognizing their fundamental sovereignty that they're as an individual have to have this power. 
And obviously, I mean, you can talk about this, but obviously you have recourse when you don't agree with things and the recourse is not to gun the person down. I was gonna say a couple of things I've encountered with people in their view of free speech. My impression is it's often very confused, various audiences I've spoken to. One issue that comes up is it's not meaningful. It's, it's sort of frivolous or it's, it's, and then it has to have some significant value in order to be qualified as free. And the, the response to that I think is no, it doesn't. It's, it's for people to judge what they think of some idea or some statement or some artistic expression. And the other one is it can't offend somebody. And, you know, if it's offensive, oh, well, that it's crossing a line in some important way. And I think that's a parochial way of thinking about the way ideas work. Every idea is going to be offensive to someone who disagrees with it. And I, I mean, I open the newspaper and I'm offended all the time. Uh, and I'm sure the things I say offend some people in some places. So the, the issue of whether the content of the, the ideas communicated are valuable in your eyes or whether you find them offensive or not those aren't criteria that disqualify or qualify something it's it, you just have to be free to express what ideas you do have and it's for other people to come and evaluate them and either can read what you have to say listen to what you say or, or ignore you or answer you or respond to it and that people have to have that freedom so, I mean, you brought up about Charlie Hebdo that you don't agree with a lot of the magazine. You don't subscribe to it. So that is like, I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not going to spend my time on this because it, I don't find it valuable. And that is, so the freedom of speech has to include for the, on the part of the audience to turn off in effect, to not subscribe, to turn off the radio station, to turn off the TV station, to not go to somebody's website or blog. So, it has to, so that's part of what freedom of speech means. You have the right to speak. You don't have a right to make people listen. They have to have that choice and that freedom. And if they do, that's sufficient. That it's sufficient that you can go your own way or when you really disagree and think it will be bad if people come to accept this idea or that idea, you can argue against it. And that's part of your freedom as well. And on the issue of offense, I think the most, or one of the most fundamental things to understand about it is most truths were offensive to people. So when the pathbreakers who discover new knowledge, and whether it's a Galileo or in, in the ancient world, a Socrates, they're among the most prominent examples, but they're just examples of a general phenomenon. Socrates is challenging philosophical and religious views of his time, and he meets a lot of opposition, people who find it not just wrong, but offensive, what he's saying. And he's eventually tried and put to death for the ideas. But he's right, and his opponents are wrong. And when Galileo is challenging religious Christian doctrine and dogma, Galileo's right, and they're wrong. And yet the truth is viewed as offensive. So if you think of freedom of speech as part of it, it's to enable the individual's pursuit of truth. You have to recognize that truth is often offensive to people. And if you're going to say, oh, yeah, well, we can't offend, you're, what you are saying in the end is we can't pursue the truth. There's a couple of other aspects I wanted to just bring out in a conversation about sort of thinking about the, the context of Charlie Hebdo. And you mentioned that when they were 
when the gunman arrived, the, the number of the journalists had been under police protection and they had a guard outside who was one of the first to be uh, uh, injured in, uh, in the attack. There is a way, and I remember at the time there were journalists who were sympathetic to Charlie Hebdo writing about, you know, from the journalist perspective, there's a certain level of courage when you have to, when you publish certain things that you're, you might face um, sort of recoil and, and criticism and, or, or put your life at risk as the, the, the journalist and Charlie Hebdo did. And that they, they do that consciously. They, I don't think they, they ever expected this kind of uh, response, but there, there is a way in which it takes courage to speak out. But I think, but, but I mean, it's worth sort of thinking more about what does it mean to, what, what does that courage look like? And, and for people who want to stand up for freedom of speech, what does it entail? What does it call upon them to do? Yes, I think it, it takes courage. It takes courage to be outside of the mainstream um, or what's considered acceptable or true or right in your contemporary world or society or culture. That it's just, it, it's that when you're voicing views that people are gonna disagree with, you're going to be met with opposition. You're going to be met with people calling you wrong. And if you're if you're a radical, it's usually not just wrong, but crazy, deranged. And so I mean, we at, at the Ayn Rand Institute, where we have a radical viewpoint, it's a radical Ayn Rand's philosophy is a radical new philosophy. Many people, when we go up on stage, have interviews on radio, TV. It's not just, no, I don't agree with you, but it's often, no, that's crazy. Your viewpoint. And that it takes courage to be able to stand and say, um, no, I mean, a hundred people, a thousand people think I'm wrong, but it, that, unless you give me an argument and some evidence for why I'm wrong and you're right, I'm gonna stand by my position and my viewpoint. That I think takes courage. It takes the courage of your convictions. It's a whole different level of courage when it's not just um, the what you face is social disagreement, criticism, and even people saying you're not just wrong, you're crazy. It's when you face physical intimidation, physical harm, and when it gets to the level of that you're going to be killed for for expressing this viewpoint, that takes a whole another level of courage, um, and it's a courage that. In a, in a certain way, you shouldn't have to exhibit. This is part of what the self-censorship means. It's, it's the, the moment physical harm is threatened, the government should step in. And part of its abdication here of Western governments is that they did not or did not sufficiently. So I should remind everyone watching us live that we're happy to take questions. We'll leave some time at the end. If you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook, please use the super chat feature on YouTube to submit your questions. Thank you. We've received one uh, donation. We appreciate your support. And if you're watching us on Zoom, you're welcome to use the Q&A module, which is at the bottom of your screen to send in your questions. Uh, you know, one of the thought I had about the Charlie Hebdo reaction. So you you said that you found it really depressing, and you explained that it has to do with it, it was too late in a certain way. That there should have been support for the earlier kind of uh, 
the, the sort of the episode at Yellen's Poston deserved that kind of support. And then there, that could have held off. One thing about the Charlie Hebdo that struck me, that massive public demonstration of support and even the politicians who showed up, I don't actually want to talk about them because I, I think there's other calculations that come in, but just the, the public reaction and even some of the intellectuals, there, there was a, and I described it as visceral, and I think it was a, a really emotional reaction, but this is the kind of thing where it, it's not unusual for that emotional reaction, but once it dissipates, because emotions don't live forever in your system, like you have them and it could last a day and there's grief and it's, it's, it goes on for longer and there's mourning and things like that. But once they, once they abate or, or attenuate over time, then what happens? And this is the point I, I was sort of thinking about. It was, and this is a point I, I was, I remember writing about this at the time and, and some of my, you know, our colleague Steve Simpson, when he was here, was writing about this too, which is there's a certain good element of being outraged by something, but that emotional reaction isn't sufficient to activate you beyond the moment, beyond the month, however long it lasts, because there's real intellectual work to do. And that needs to be conscious, it needs to be deliberate, it needs to be sort of strategized and long-term and, and, and ongoing. You, so in other words, there has to be a conviction that is, you believe free speech is a paramount value and it has to be defended and defended on, you know, on every front with uh, uh, sort of ongoing statements and, and, and uh, uh, ex exhibiting the value of what you're doing. So th there has to be that kind of work. Um, and I think what we saw in the last six years since Charlie Hebdo and the reaction to it is there hasn't been that kind of work or not enough of it to, to make sort of a change in the trend that, that we're seeing. Yeah. And you put it that you have to have a conviction. And I think that's right. Uh, another way to put it is you have to be willing to take a stand and here that means a principled stand. So I viewed the reaction after the assassinations in 2015. And as you said, it, it was a massive reaction in, in the streets of France as the reaction of people trying to walk the middle of the road. And not they do not always consciously like this is, they would say, this is what I'm doing, but this is in effect what they were doing. So when you had the, the Danish cartoons and the worldwide, or at least um, the, in the Western world and Islamic world, the reaction to it, it's, they don't wanna take a stand in regard to this. And it's, 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 again, it's a middle of the road mentality. It's why do you have to publish these? Why do you have to stir things up? Why do you have to antagonize? And so it's not, they're not siding with the rioters in the Middle Eastern countries, but nor are they siding with the Danish newspaper. It's like, it's, why do you have to go to such an extreme will be one way that it will be put. We're trying to walk the middle of the road. And then, so it's one thing for people to be demonstrating and rioting against the newspaper. When the journalists at Charlie Hebdo are assassinated, the reaction also, and I think it's a genuine reaction, like we don't want this. We can't have a society where journalists are being assassinated. And so we don't, and, and that's the legitimacy of the emotional reaction. But so long as you're trying to walk a middle of the road, um, it's going to be 
you're not going to take stand and you're not going to take a principled stand, a principled stand. And for that reason, it has to dissipate. I think it, it requires a fundamental change in how people are thinking about it for there to be long-term change. So you gave a talk not long after the assassinations at Charlie Hebdo, and I forget the exact title, but part of your message was the need to ridicule, the, the importance of freedom of speech and the need to ridicule religion, the necessity of ridiculing religion. And one of the, one of the things you, you said in that talk that really stuck with, with me is, it's not enough to think about religion staying out of politics and, and a separation of church and state, though there's an important principle there. It's that the part of what needs to happen is religion needs to be caged, uh, which is a really powerful uh, image. So if we, sort of, if we zoom out a bit and think about, so this is not just any kind of attack on a journal, on journalists. This is specifically by Islamists. They, that was their goal. They stated it. It wasn't a surprise in that sense. So there's clearly a, a religious component here. And of course, it's not the only religion. I mean, religion throughout history has been hostile to freedom of thought. Um, so I, I just want to get from you a bit more about that. Why is it so important from your perspective to be able to criticize religion? Or what, what, why did you put it in such strong terms back then? I think what you brought up um, towards the end of what you just said about that Historically, what you see when religion rose to the culturally um, dominant power, and then that will mean it's wielding some, if not considerable, political power as well, it presents itself and tries to enforce that it's untouchable, that so that, that there's blasphemy um, and that this is punishable and it's punishable by death. If you think of just the, the Catholic, um, the, the whole Catholic tradition, they're more in an uproar when people go wrong about how they think about the Trinity and they, there's heretics and we're gonna, um, we're gonna destroy them, we're gonna kill them. Then when there's abuse and like massive abuse of boys in the church, they take much more seriously, like you're, blaspheming and going against doctrine, that's, you cannot do that. That's forbidden. And it takes a lot to get out of that framework and that mentality and what it takes. And I think what it took in regard to Christianity and what it will take in regard to Islam is it's a massive assault on saying this whole approach to thinking about life, about ideas, um, about how we should live is wrong. And in the Enlightenment period, there's considerable critique of religious ideas, religious doctrine, but it's critique at a very fundamental level, including a lot of ridicule that this is crazy, that we can't live like this at all that there's something really, really wrong with the person in, in the enlightenment, it will be put as he's caught in the grips of enthusiasm. So he's this rabid, unthinking follower of religion who's going to make everybody follow the, the dogmas that he's swallowed. So it's, it's much more like what we see in the Middle East with the Taliban or with the clerics in Iran. 
if this, when it, you have religion like that, you need an all out assault on it, that this is not just, there's something wrong when you're gonna take up arms in the name of this, it's this whole approach to ideas and life is wrong. And it's only when that, when the enlightenment won in regard to that, that religion became a much less significant intellectual force. And that's the context I think in which it will be then, and it certainly can't wield political power. But that's a consequence, not a primary. It makes me think that, you know, one way to characterize the attackers, the, the gunmen, and all the all the clerics before them who were issuing fatwas against Rushdie and against the, the the Danish newspaper. There's a kind of authoritarianism, an intellectual authoritarianism. You have to bow to the authority of our religion, and if you don't, we'll come after you. And literally, that's what they did with Charlie Hebdo. That kind of, I mean, it's intimidation. It's uh, submission to some higher view and it's a denial of your own sovereignty. And I think one, one of the lessons is that this sort of this ties in with why free speech is so important. It's about preserving your independence of mind to be able to judge and figure out the world and, and make your own decisions about what you believe and what you don't believe and what you ignore and what you support. This is really the story of, you put it, this, this was going on in the Middle East. It's very prevalent and it's the Charlie Hebdo attacks made it, so it was an importation of that mentality to Europe. And it was an attempt on, in one instance, to, to elevate that mentality above the principle of freedom of speech, above a secular society where you don't bow to that, any kind of religious authority. Uh, and and the, the thing that I mean, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about this, doing this discussion, you mentioned there's sort of tie-ins with uh, some of the things we're seeing in our society unrelated to Islam and this, this whole idea of cancel culture. So I wanted to explore that a bit with you. One thing that I was thinking, what, what are some aspects here? But one thing that struck me is that there's a tie-in, at least one connection I can see that's interesting that has to do with self-censorship. And so if you think about what is the outcome of assassinating a room full of journalists in Paris? Well, one thing that it does is it, it puts the fear of death in tens of thousands of journalists everywhere. And it kind of, it creates a, a chilling effect to put it mildly. And the, the over and above the existing self-censorship that existed in Europe for a decade plus. So, I'm not equating the the, the assassin the assassins at Charlie Hebdo with a lot of the people you see on Twitter, but there there is a certain commonality of mindset of telling people, no, you can't be saying this sort of thing. This is beyond the bounds, and uh, you should shut up and just stop talking about these sorts of issues. I mean, I see something there. I'm not. I, I need to think more about it, but I'm interested in your perspective on that. Yeah, I think that there's a few things that need to be distinguished here. And for me, self-censorship has a specific use. So let me say something about that and then something about the, some, some of the wider issues. So censorship, leave aside the self-censorship for a moment. Censorship is a concept that pertains only to government. 
So a newspaper doesn't engage in censorship when they say, uh, I mean, we submit op-eds to different newspapers. And when they said, no, we're passing on this one, that is not censorship of our ideas. If we have freedom to speak, but other people then have to have freedom to say, yeah, I like what you're saying. I'm going to publish it. I'm going to amplify your message or no, I don't think this is any good and I'm not going to publish this. So it's not censorship when someone disagrees with you and as a result says, I don't wanna deal with you in this way or that way. It's censorship when government says, you cannot publish this idea or you need our prior permission. Like you have to submit your movies or your novels to the government and we'll see like, is this a lewd scene? No, then you can't publish this. Or is there, um, you depict marriage in a certain way in a movie, you can't um, publish this movie. And it's the government saying you can't and you'll face legal um, penalties. You'll be um, fined, you'll be imprisoned. That's censorship. So what self-censorship means, censorship is the government interfering with your right to freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Self-censorship is other individuals interfering with your right to freedom of speech and the government not protecting you. So it's, um, so if you think of what it meant for what the, the Danish cartoons, what they were testing to say it was self-censorship, it's that people not speaking their actual ideas, things they actually think for fear, but the fear is not People are going to criticize me. People are going to write letters to the editor saying like these cartoons are really bad. This is stupid. It's fear of physical violence. So it's it's our newspaper is going to be firebombed or newspaper offices or we're going to be tar beaten up or even killed. That's then if the government did that because you published a story or a cartoon, that would be censorship. And if you fear that your neighbor is going to do this and the government's going to just sort of stand by and not defend you, then it's, and you say, okay, so I'm not gonna publish this cartoon or write this story because I'm scared of being beaten up or killed. That's self-censorship. Um, and it's, it's, now it's the government, and you, in this case, unfortunately, there's reason to think the government won't defend me. And then if you're censoring because, so if you're not publishing something because you can't take the criticism, that's a lack of courage, a lack of integrity of standing up for your ideas. If you won't publish something because you, you're scared to get a bullet in your head, that's not the same thing. And that's when self-censorship applies. We bring this to the context of, you know, the, the I don't like the term cancel culture, but the, what I think sometimes is meant by that is the idea that there are censorious people who are gonna come out and either shame you or maybe cause you to lose your job or lose your, your standing. And so I think some of that is legitimate. You should, people should be able to criticize you and there might be consequences. And that's just part of being in a, in a society where people are free to air their views. I think that there's an aspect that comes out where there's sort of a mob mentality that comes along. And it's not simply, yeah, I disagree with you, you're fired. You can't write for this newspaper anymore or you can't teach at this university or I don't wanna be friends with you. It's not any of those kinds of things. It's more of people sort of grouping together in a sometimes coordinated, sometimes sort of spontaneous, but just this person has to be shut up. Let's see what we can do. And, and there's all sorts of things that are done 
that are, I think are harassment or intimidation. And sometimes there's even, you know, doxing people or revealing their private information, their home addresses and things like all of which are, I think, meant as threats. Like we know where you live and you, we'll come after you. Or we'll, we're, we're paving the road for someone else to do that, which is often the way these things work. That, I, I mean, I don't think, so in other words, there's a lot that's put under council culture that needs to be separated out and sort of thought about differently. So it's not a helpful category, but there, there is something about the kind of authoritarian mentality that I was describing that you see with religious thinking that I see some of in this context, which is, no, there's just one right way to think about the scale of racism in America. There's just one right way to think about and if you don't think this, you must obviously be part of the problem. There's, there's no sense in which you could, there might be evidence behind your view that leads you to different perspective. And it's not, or that it's instantly you're an evil person if you don't hold what is seen as the right view. Uh, so I see, I, I know I, I get that that's different from self-censorship, but I can see people, I mean, there's stories of people in newsrooms saying to themselves, I'm not going to write this story because all my colleagues are going to, um, group or you know they're gonna they're gonna come after me kind of in a, in a gang effect and they don't want to write about that story so that story doesn't get written uh i don't think it's it's quite the same thing as your neighbor's gonna firebomb your house but there's something common there yeah and i think the the danish cartoon crisis helped blur this so the, two of the things you brought up that i think are important in getting what's packaged together under this um, description that you really have to separate and treat differently. So one is the, the reasons for why people say you should not deal with this person, this person shouldn't write for our newspaper, or you shouldn't, you newspaper, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, you shouldn't be publishing this kind of thing. One is, are they giving reasons and arguments for it that are good, that are rational, that are informed? Or is it a mob mentality that in effect is saying, look at the number of people who are objecting. We're upset, we're outraged. You should do something about this. Even if we have no reason to be up, uh, upset, even if our outrage is irrational. So, and if you think of the time of the Danish cartoon crisis, so. Part of, you put it, the, the imams were going around the Middle East trying to stir things up. And it was then what they're trying to show and what too much in the West was taken. Like, look at the outrage. There's something wrong if we're doing something where there's this many people demonstrating. And, so, and without thinking, like, what's the source of the outrage? Virtually none of the people in the crowd had seen any of the cartoons. It's They've been told to be outrage and so they're saying they're outraged and so on. it was fundamentally irrational and immoral and then to take that seriously to say oh yeah i mean a lot of people are upset maybe we should look at how what we published and why, why are we publishing this kind of thing you should not capitulate to that mob kind of mentality that is fundamentally irrational that's one of the things going on but then if you also blur, there's a, a radical difference between saying, look, we're not, we're going to, you brought up that the um, Islamic countries, some of them and the imams were pushing, don't buy Danish goods and don't buy Danish beer and so on. There's one thing to say, and, and if you said to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, 
Um, you've published this Tom Cotton op-ed. I'm unsubscribing from the New York Times if this is what you publish. I don't want this, this publication anymore. That's one thing. It's another thing when you start to intimidate them. And that line is incredibly blurred today of issuing threats, online threats where people say, well, it's just an online threat. So what does it really mean? But online threats do often translate into actual physical action. If not by the person issuing the threat, then he's stirring people up to attack. It's when you start demonstrating outside a person's home or a business and making it hard for people to get in and out. And so that is not criticism anymore. That's a violation of people's rights. And when you blur that, um, you, you're, as a society, you're really in trouble. There's one thing for people to say, I'm not dealing with you because I disagree with you. And it might be irrational for why the person disagrees and won't deal with you. But the moment they start introducing threats and the, the possibility of you suffering physical harm for what you're doing, that should be in a completely different category. And part of what is put under cancel culture blurs that as well. Um, so you can't think with, if you're treating this as one phenomenon about what you have, and you have to think the same about everything that is going on, you have to make real separation between both for the reasons for why people are objecting rational or not, and how are they objecting? Is it, we're not gonna deal with you? So it's, are they objecting in an intellectual way or are they objecting by we're gonna smash your business in effect? So we, we've gotten a comment that I wanna bring into the conversation. I think it's interesting that I heard this at the time of the Danish cartoons crisis. And I, I think there was some of it after the Charlie Hebdo attack, which is if you aggravate people you're you're to blame for what they do to you and, and you know you had it coming there there's definitely that attitude towards charlie abdo that's certainly not true i think that's really it's perverse to have that perspective and it it's sort of confirm it it's definitely confirmation that the arguments you hear about islam are the, being inherently peaceful are just, they're, they're, I mean, they're historically false, but they're also false in logic in the sense that if it's the case that criticizing this view is going to cause some of the followers of this view to come after you, then there's, there's a real problem here that you can't shy away from. And it, it's, it, it's, it's a massive concession to the, of the idea that we should be free to criticize every view, regardless of its origin and whether it's religious or secular. Uh, and I think that that climate has gotten actually worse in the sense that mm -hmm. there were people, prominent people who were critical of Charlie Abdo. And I think that this is, there was an episode, I, I hope I can remember the details well enough. The Pen America, which is a, a association for authors had decided to award its, I think it was a award for courage to Charlie Abdo the year of the assassination. So after it meant, made a significant difference, I guess. And there was, I think a hundred and some, hundred plus authors who signed a letter criticizing this and, and uh, refusing to attend the ceremony saying this is a mistake. All of which was just astonishing that there would be that kind of reaction. So in, so in effect saying, yeah, they don't deserve any kind of award for, for courage. And in effect the subtext and some of them actually had this view 
no, they they had it coming. They they were wrong to to voice these views. They and it wasn't quite yes, the killers were right, but there was not an objection in effect to the fact that you should be able to, to do this without being suffering harm. Do you remember that episode? I, I... Yeah, and it the the courage here is so the, the, there's the individual courage of they knew that this is placing their their business, but more their lives in danger and were willing to do it. But I think they were willing to do it because they were ready to stand up for the principle of freedom of speech. That's when they're when they're republishing the Danish cartoons and standing with them, they're doing it for the principle. And the idea of a set of authors and so who, whose whole livelihood depends on freedom of speech, whose livelihood is made possible only in modern Western societies where you, we have a protection of rights, including the rights of property and the rights to speak that makes the whole enterprise of book publishing, magazine publishing so possible on the scale that it exists today. The idea that you're not gonna give an award to these um, the these journalists who should have shamed you in effect, like they were willing to stand up for freedom of speech when we weren't. So rather than not admiring both their personal courage and their convictions of criticizing and attacking them, it was, I mean, it was outrageous. So I think we're basically at time. Did you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? So we, frame this um, discussion a little bit in terms of that freedom or liberty requires eternal vigilance. The threat to freedom of speech in the West, the, the reason we might lose this right, that it's hard won and um, that we've made a lot of progress in, even in America, when you look over the 200 years, it's one of the, since, since the, the founding of the country, it's one of the rights that I think has become more protection has been given, proper protection has been given to this. If you look at the last hundred years in law, I think free speech law in the US has gotten better, not worse. It's not correct, I don't think, um, but it's gotten better. But it is under threat. And the th real threat is from we in the West who either don't understand the principle or won't stand up for the principle. It's the, the Islamic um, totalitarians, as evil as they are, don't possess the power to strip us of this right. It's we can surrender it, but they can't strip us of the right. And that, so that's the real danger and the real threat that we won't fight for it, not that they're going to win if we fought for it. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Thanks, Ankar. Uh, I just remind everyone that if you enjoy watching us, please like this video on YouTube or on Facebook and subscribe to the channel on YouTube. That helps us grow our audience and bring more people to these ideas. And if you uh, would like to give us your feedback or suggestions for topics, you can reach us by email newideal at einrand.org. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, 
leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.